We'll dismiss our children to children's ministry. And if you'll open your Bibles to Acts 2. We're continuing the message we began last week discussing asking. And I really did not, I can honestly say, I did not realize how long that message was. So if you felt like it was long, you're right. It was long. I didn't realize it until I uploaded it online. I'm like, oh my goodness, I killed those poor people. Today, I don't think we'll, we'll, we'll take as much time because we're really summarizing and wrapping up what we discussed last week. And certainly, what we discussed last week is profound and deep and complex enough to warrant a second visit to it, to kind of like tease it out and think through the applications and the implications of what we learned. And what we learned is basically this, that at the heart of a right relationship with God is the art of asking. It's the ability it's, it's, the, it's the basic rhythm of the Christian life to see ourselves as creatures, to see God as our creator, to see ourselves as children, to see God as the father, and that the baseline of a relationship with God is this art of asking. And that because that's the baseline of our relationship with God, it also becomes the baseline of our relationship with human beings. And we'll continue to discuss that again this morning. I want to first show you that asking is the very first act of obedience that the Christian undertakes. Asking is the very first act of obedience that the Christian undertakes. We see this in a text we read a few weeks ago in Acts 2, in verse 37. Peter's preaching a sermon. He just said in verse 36 that the the hearers of this message were themselves personally responsible for crucifying Jesus And it says in verse 37, now when the crowd heard this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls. Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. My numbers are all off right now. 2,000 souls. Uh, You don't see the word asking in that text, but everything involved, in the first believer's act of obedience was asking. It's, it's, it's sort of hidden in the text in a way, but, but also not so hidden that you can't see it. The, the idea is that they were asking to be forgiven. And they were asking for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And these are like really big and bold asks of people who had just killed Jesus. Right? So one of the things we'll, we'll underline time and time again today is this humble boldness associated with the biblical art of asking. It is, it is humble. They, they certainly didn't feel like they deserved. They had no right to demand anything from God. It's rooted in repentance, this, this humility of, I do, not, I do not have the right to demand anything from God. So there's a humility to their asking, but there's also great boldness to their asking. They're asking for, as I said in my prayer, God's most costly and undeserved gift. They're asking that Jesus, the one whom they crucified, that his righteousness 
be applied to their sins, including the sin of crucifying him. Uh, that, that's an incredibly bold ask. So what I'm, what I'm doing right now is just helping you to see how central asking is to the Christian life. Like, it's just, it's just a baseline. In fact, I think it's the first thing we do as new creatures in Christ. We ask God. That's the basic rhythm of our relationship. Let me show you another passage. If you'll go to Romans 10, and let's look at verses 12 through 13 in Romans 10. It says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So can we, can we agree that call on him is the same as asking, especially when it shows that he's bestowing his riches on all who call on him? And then it says in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's this action of approaching God and asking him for his most costly and undeserved gift. Now, I want you to see, if you'll go up a little bit in the text to verse 8, I want you to see how Paul describes that event of salvation in a different way. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So between verses 8 and 13, without any explanation, Paul equates belief with calling upon the name of the Lord, with asking. He's, he doesn't do any explanation. He just seamlessly says that the one thing is the other thing. That belief equals asking. That if you understand who Jesus is and what he's offering, the, the true evidence of that belief is that you would ask him for it. And that if, you, if, you, if you're not asking him for it, it's evidence that you don't understand. Your, your, your heart hasn't been renewed to allow you to see. The scales of your eyes haven't been taken back. This idea that this connection between belief and asking is really a big deal because if belief or asking is the very first thing we do as Christians, it's, it's the very first fruit, then we know God and we know how he works and we can kind of extrapolate from there and say, this is fundamental. This is fundamental to my whole relationship with God. This sense of seeing who he is and what he offers and asking, that's, that's belief. And, and not asking, is, that's disbelief. And, and so that fellowship and asking and these ideas are kind of all connected. Now, the first Christians had this encounter with this incredibly generous God, a God who gave his own son. And by faith, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, they were allowed to ask God that his son's righteousness be applied to their account. It's the first thing they did. They did it humbly. They did it boldly. And as a result of their encounter with the unparalleled generosity of God, their human relationships were transformed. Right? So verse 44 of Acts 2. All who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were all selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So uh, on Easter Sunday, when you invite your friends, I'm going to be talking about generous heart, what it means to have a glad and generous heart, and why that's so important to our relationships. So what you see in this text is a group of people who had just encountered the radical generosity of God as expressed through him giving his son for them. You see them asking that that incredible gift be applied to their account, to their lives. And as a result of this encounter with God's lavish generosity, their relationships with other people change so that they have glad and generous hearts and are joyfully even selling possessions and belongings and distributing them to those who have need and joyfully going to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes and so on and so forth. The transformation of their earthly human relationships is all aftershock from the encounter with a radically generous God. That's, that's, that's how human relationships are fundamentally transformed. And throughout the scriptures, this kind of, um, if your relationship with God changes, your relationship with people should change, like that kind of math problem comes up over and over again, right? I was just reading in Matthew 6 and in uh, Matthew 18 where Jesus makes it clear, listen, if you don't forgive others, you have not encountered the forgiveness of Christ. Because if you've encountered the forgiveness of Christ, it will overflow into forgiving others. Isn't that the basic idea between the great, behind the great commandment where Jesus says that all the law is summed up in two things. Love the Lord with all your heart and out of that, transform, out of that love, your approach to people will transform and you will love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the basic math in, in the idea of fruitfulness and the idea of the reality of our relationship with God is, is that once we get this right, this starts to change. Once we get our inter- interaction with the Father correct, that interaction informs our interactions with other people. And of course, this explains why so many people are so frustrated in their broken relationships and they can't seem to get any traction. And they've really tried. I mean, they've really gone to incredible lengths to try to make it work. And they just can't get any traction. And the reason they can't get any traction is there's another relationship that precedes our relationship with other people and informs our relationship with other people and empowers our relationship with other people. And that's our relationship with the God of the universe. And so we can't, we can't reverse engineer it, right? We can't, I mean, we, can't, we can't fix this until our relationship with God is corrected. So that's the way it's supposed to work. We encounter the generosity of the Father. We ask humbly and boldly. He provides lavishly. And then we do the same with each other. That's why James, in James 4, 1 through 3, is so disturbed by what he sees. It isn't the fights and quarrels exactly. Those are the symptoms 
The root, he says in that passage, is that they're not asking. Or they're asking wrongly. He says in in verse 1 of James 4, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So this sweet fellowship that originally springs out of our encounter with the generosity of God, it's all like based on asking. All that's dried up for these folks so that they don't have sweet fellowship with each other anymore. And the reason they don't have sweet fellowship with each other anymore is because their asking is either not happening or it's happening wrongly. We talked about a lot of this last week, and if you haven't heard that message, I, I think it's probably worth listening to, even though it's pretty long. You might want to get plenty of provisions, you know, snacks, extra water, etc. Um, but, but, but last week, we, we essentially discussed this, uh, the importance of asking itself, and we left hanging out there somewhat, we touched on it, we left hanging out there somewhat the, the, the problem of asking wrongly that James mentions. I essentially said that if you look throughout Scripture, that God's cure for asking wrongly is to ask until your asking is transformed. You know, I, I thought about this last this week. Uh, essentially, prayer is a detoxification of our desires. Right? So, that, so that, that the more we bring our desires to the Lord, the more they're purified and become what they ought to be. So that asking itself is the way to transform bad asking. There's more to it, but that's the review. But I want to talk today about, like, well, what kind of asking pleases God? If part of the problem with this whole broken relationship thing is that we're not good at asking or we're asking wrongly, then what kind of asking pleases God? What kind of asking brings peace, both to our relationship with God and also to our relationship with other people? Well, let's think about that. Let's try to solve that. Crack that nut this morning. What kind of asking pleases God? Well, look at Luke 23, verse 39. Here's an example of asking that doesn't please God and an example of asking that does. Jesus is hanging on the cross. To his right and left are criminals there because they deserve to be. And one of the criminals, verse 39, who was hanged, railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. There's an ask there. Save yourself, save us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. So both criminals are asking. One is asking in a manipulative way. And one is asking in a humble and broken way. One is asking in a way to to extort Jesus into doing what he wants. If you really are the Christ, then you need to save yourself and us. Let me manipulate you into giving me what I want. The other is simple, humble, 
broken and yet really bold. It's humble because he understands he's there because he deserves to be there. It's also humble and bold because he understands the person in the middle, Jesus, doesn't deserve to be there. It's insightful because he understands that Jesus is headed into his kingdom through this crucifixion. And again, this is all of grace. This criminal didn't conjure these things up. This is the Holy Spirit working in a monergistic way to bring about information he could have never had on his own to bring it to life in his heart. So it's broken, it's humble, and it's bold. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So through the gift of the Holy Spirit, this thief had discovered the art of asking. He didn't ask in a formulaic way. He didn't think that if he said some kind of magic words that God would be forced to give him what he wanted. He didn't ask in a transactional way. He wasn't bargaining with God. This wasn't like a spiritual swap meet where, uh, where, where Jesus had something he wanted and he offered something that Jesus wanted. There's nothing, there's nothing formulaic or transactional about this. This is just totally sincere. I, I need this. I want this. Just, just that. Not you have to do this for me because or if you really are who you say you are, you'll no, just this. I, I want this. It's truly sincere. It's truly humble. I don't deserve this. And totally bold. I'm asking you for a massive gift. So one, the, the first thief, he has no regard for his own guilt. And that informs so much of the way he asks. But the other one, he understands that he deserves nothing and that Jesus is not required to give him anything. And yet somehow through the miracle of faith, he asks for something really, really massive and undeserving. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Now, I want you to go into a little thought experiment with me for a minute. Just imagine that Jesus looks to his right, to his left, and says, the last miracle I'm going to perform before I die is I'm going to get these guys both off the cross. And I'm going to send them both home to their wives. So, so, he, so they, the, the, the thief on the right, the thief on the left, they're, they're somehow you know, floated, I guess we'll say, off the cross, land on their feet. They look down, they realize they're okay. The wounds in their hands heal up immediately, and they both go home to their wives. Let's say they're both married. Now, let's say further that in both cases, over a few days, these men with a new lease on life are all about like thinking and seeing things more clearly and that both of them realize that in a variety of ways over the course of their marriages, their wives haven't really been very concerned with particular needs or desires that they have. They're kind of looking and seeing things anew. And they're like, you know, my wife, both, both thinking this, you know, my wife really, like, she doesn't really care, seem to care about the needs or desires that I have. We can already predict, based on the way they asked Jesus, how they will approach their wives. Isn't that interesting? We know how the first thief will ask his wife for better food, 
sex, whatever it is. We know he will be a haughty manipulator. He will say, if you love me, you will do X, Y, and Z for me. Because that's what good wives do. Are you a good wife or not? He's just extrapolating out the kind of asking he had practiced with God. And maybe he won't ask at all. Because he has found this secret little poison in his heart that feels so good. And it's called resentment. And he gets far more joy out of trying her in the court of his heart and mind than he would out of whatever she would give him anyway. And he loves feeling as if he's justified in his bitterness. It's just this self-righteousness that sort of makes him feel good. And, and so he thinks in his heart, my wife isn't doing X, Y, and Z, but in a level he doesn't even recognize himself, he's decided that it would be better just to keep living this, this life of self-pity and self-righteousness and martyrdom. And this feels so good, and I'm just going to keep this like this. And also, if I were to say that I need something from my wife, that would make me appear weak. She should know what I need. She should anticipate. It's her job to concern, discern my needs. And so this sweet little elixir of resentment boils up in him and it feeds this thing he wants most of all, and that is pride. The second has had an encounter with Jesus based on a biblical approach to asking. He's discovered the art of asking. And he is no more or less pleased with his wife. And he is no more or less in need of the same things the other guy is. They're dudes. And their wives are wives. And there's all sorts of disconnects in godly marriages and in ungodly marriages. A lot of them are the same things. He doesn't... He doesn't transcend his need and say, I just don't need this anymore because I've reached a new stage of enlightenment. And rather than ask, I'll simply find contentment within. That's not what he learned with Jesus. What he learned with Jesus is, is that there is a way to ask for things I need that is also humble and broken and filled with a sense of undeserving And so he goes to his wife a completely different way. And honestly, his experience with grace may not transform his wife's behavior in the short term. It might not ever. She's going to continue to fail him in various ways. So what does she do? What does he do? Does he resent her? Does he try her in the court of his heart and mind? Does he manipulate her? No, he continues to apply the very same art of asking that he learned with Christ to his wife and he doesn't approach her haughtily. He doesn't manipulate her with guilt because he has learned through his encounter with Jesus that he can ask for things that he needs and desires in a way that emphasizes both boldness and humility and he can trust above all else, he can trust That if God gave me his own son, how will he not also freely give me all things? Because the most important piece of the the art of asking is to recognize the incredible generosity of the father as demonstrated by his willingness to give his most costly and undeserved gift. And so this guy's heart is full in a way 
that the other guy's heart never can be. And his hope in God to meet his needs is informed by God meeting his most serious need. So all of this stuff starts to wear off. Wear wear off in a good way onto his rub off, onto his human relationships. Now, one way to ask this is, which criminal will get what they want? And I... The more I think about it, I'm tempted to say, don't, this isn't, don't take this to the bank. Um, I'm starting to wonder if both criminals got exactly what they wanted all along. And that the first criminal, what he really wanted was fortification of his pride, justification and affirmation that he is suffering unjustly and that he deserves better, fuel for his resentment, Evidence that he is right and everybody who denies him his desires is wrong. And best of all, proof that God does not care, that he is not gracious, and that this criminal is totally justified sowing into the flesh because the God of the universe has neglected him. And I think, of course, the second criminal gets what he wants too. Friends, don't ever underestimate the intoxifying power of pride and how good it feels when it is fueled with the wrongdoings of others. Well, let me talk about a few real-life moments from our home. This concept is... It's funny, this is how it always works when preached through any kind of idea or passage. It just starts showing up in my life, and I'm so thankful for that. I mean, I could just count on it, that, 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 that if I'm really seriously walking through a passage, that there will be some opportunity for me to prove myself a hypocrite. Uh, <laughs> or maybe some test of some sort, or some evidence of some sort. So I'm going to tell you a story about Wes and I, and I'm going to tell you a story about Ange and I, and I, I asked permission in both cases in advance. So uh, Wes had been feeling somewhat resentful recently about my failure to lead better at home in a particular area. He wanted me to do a better job. Where are you? Where is he? Oh, there he is. Making sure that the quality of our conversations as a family were more consistent and deeper. So, and he was right about my failure there. I, I, I wasn't doing a good job. Now, here's where we could have gone wrong. He didn't come right out and say, Dad, I want you to do a better job in this, or I need you to do a better job with this, or I'd like you to do a better job with this, because part of him felt guilty, right? Because I'm doing that for other people, and he felt like, gosh, I hate to put more on him. And I have found so often, by the way, that people use that, and I'm not saying that Wes was using this knowingly, but people use, I hate to put more on them as a sweet excuse to not have a humbling conversation that involves like a need. So he, he was thinking that, and part of him was just uncertain if his assessment was correct. And part of him felt like he should just figure this stuff out on his own, you know? He's 18, and, you know, maybe he should just get his act together, and that should be that. So 
Part of him was resentful. Now, to be clear, he was right about his concerns. I was failing him, and I should have seen it, but I didn't. And furthermore, as the leader of the home, it would have been, it is my fault for not noticing this. But for a short season, instead of asking directly, Wes just let all those thoughts swirl in his large noggin. And I noticed that he was getting a little more and more removed in the past few weeks. There have been other moments where this has kind of shown up before. You know, I would be out of the kitchen table working or whatever, and he would kind of be obviously in his room or... Got parents of teenagers know know these things. We, we, we recognize them. We just don't know what to do about them. <laughs> uh, but in those in those moments of him being removed, of course, there was a self reinforcing cycle because the more he's in his room, the less opportunity I have to do what he wants me to do, and the less I do what he wants me to do, the more his resentment feels justified. And the more his resentment feels justified, the more distant he becomes. And the more distant he becomes, the fewer opportunities I have to do what he wants me to do. The resentment sort of feeds into their relationship, and I feel this sort of low-grade shame as I know I'm failing him. And maybe I know why, or maybe I don't. But this low-grade shame increases the distance on my part. I start to hide. Or I, perhaps I start digging for evidence that he's failing me. And so really, before you know it, a basic issue in a relationship, upon which pretty much everyone agree, would agree, like this is the problem and this is, this, is, this is who's responsible. A basic issue in a relationship, if asking is neglected, can really, really take us off the rails in our personal relationships. The other day I came home early. I was hoping to find him. He was there. I sat down next to him and asked him if he could talk. The first thing he did, this is, this is massively important. The first thing he did was he canceled his workout that he had coming up. And Wes loves to go to his gym so that he would have plenty of time to talk. And then we sat there and talked, maybe 90 minutes, two hours, something like that. And God gave him grace to ask clearly what he wanted. He was wonderfully articulate. God gave me grace to not get defensive and to listen and to clarify what he felt like he needed from me and to apologize for my failure and to make specific plans that with him that would begin to address his needs and desires. Now, all of that sounds so Norman Rockwell, but I mean, I'm giving you a good instance, right? And it's recent, so I, I remember it. But really, think about all the time, all the ways that could, conversation could go wrong. It, it is in many respects like walking a tightrope. There are so many opportunities in a conversation like that for it to go wrong. And, and the fact that we ever walk any of them is an evidence of God's miraculous sustaining grace. So, you know, in a conversation like this, I want to be clear, 
you know, we're not out of the woods yet. This is not the this is not the conclusion of the matter. The first time I failed to deliver what I said I would. He will be tempted to add another layer to his past resentment and say, see, I knew you'd never change. And so that first failure actually could could escalate and, and, and speed up the brokenness of the relationship we thought we had fixed. So that forgiveness and grace and consistency are key. Um, my shame for failing him that first time I failed him after I said I was going to do what I was going to do. Uh, my, my shame for failing him could creep in. And I could grow defensive or ashamed or, or begin to decide that what he asked was too much. And I could increase my distance, which would in turn further frustrate him. I'm starting to feel like the, the little guy from The Princess Bride. Now, <laughs> I'm not sharing this story because it, because it makes either of us look good. And nor do I'm not, I'm not sharing it because like, well, look, we fixed it. It's, it's amazing now. The point is, is that only by putting the problem on the table through an artful use of asking was this thing ever going to get resolved. Now think of how many times it hasn't happened that way in your life. Think of all the conversations and maybe conversations that never happened that are piling up in your various key relationships where the thing didn't work out or you didn't even have the conversation. So let me talk about Ange and I. Um, A week ago, this is more than a week ago now, Ange called me to ask to help her make a decision about something. Now, I'd just gotten off an hour-long call that was extremely taxing, mentally, emotionally, etc., so when she spoke, I only heard the Charlie Brown teacher. And husbands, you know, that happens. And, uh, but, but I caught myself with the wah, wah, wah. I caught myself and thought, I'm not listening, Chris. You're not listening. You're not listening, Chris. And so I actually interrupted her. I was like, okay, hold on. I was just on this really bad phone call. She's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Okay. She's like, and I'm like, my brain is, is fractionally useful right now. So, um. Can you help me, me expressing need here, can you help me just be by being like 100% clear with what you need and, uh, and try to spell it out to me so that I can understand it? And she said, um, one sentence, I want you to tell me whether I should go to community group or Wes's game. And I said, go to community group. It's been a while. Now, she wanted me to make a decision for her, and I can do that. I can do that, and I did that. And in that case, because that's what she really wanted, that conversation worked perfectly. I expressed the need to her, hey, listen, I'm not listening. (laughs) My brain is not working. Can you really help me? She really quickly articulated what she needed. I was able in that moment to not overthink it, just give her an answer. Didn't really have to be, there's no right answer in that case. You know, I mean, it, it could have been either. I just gave her the answer that I thought was the best answer. 
She wanted that from me, and so the conversation went fine. Now, what if she didn't actually want that? That that, that would ever happen. Not that it would ever happen that, that, that a spouse would perhaps misstate the need they have or the desire they have. Now, she may not have actually wanted help making the decision because she may have already decided. And what she may actually be looking for is help in getting over the guilt of saying no to a good thing or affirmation that she had made the right decision and so on and so forth. Now, if she wanted those things, then my response would have been unsatisfying to her. If she wanted help with guilt over saying no to a good thing, if she wanted me to affirm the decision she'd already made or whatever else she wanted, uh, you know, she wanted me to cancel a community group, say we're all going to West's game. Uh, whatever it is, like, like whatever she wanted, if she didn't ask for that, it's very possible that my simple response go to community group, it's been a while, would be entirely unsatisfying to her. And it wouldn't have been my fault for once. She would have simply failed to accurately understand what she really wanted from me and then failed to articulate it appropriately. Now, in that case, there would have been a period of dissatisfaction after that call. And it would have been tiny. She's not petty. You know, she's, she's, she's more emotionally stable than I am. Um, so, so, so it would have been small. But in previous years, I think her or I, if I were on the other, if the shoe was on the other foot, would have just absorbed that dissatisfaction without pressing into why. And we would have attempted to deal with it as a symptom of a problem that we had in our heart or, or attributed it to our spouse's inability to read our minds uh, or so on and so forth. And it simply would never have occurred to us that our dissatisfaction was the, with the other was due to our failure to clearly articulate what we needed from the other. We would have come up, I think, with a billion other explanations before we got to, I didn't actually ask for what I needed or what I wanted. Now, repeat that dissatisfaction hundreds of times in small moments over various needs and you've got resentment. And you've got the story you tell yourself about why you feel resentful and it's that your spouse isn't attentive to your needs False. False. They haven't been given the chance to be attentive to your needs because you have not humbly yet boldly in the manner you should have learned from your father gone to your spouse and said, this is what I am truly after. So all too often we resent our spouses, our parents, our church members, for failing to give us something that we haven't sincerely asked for in a proper way. And here's the thing, like you're just not entitled to be surrounded by, by people that read your mind. 
That is not in the Constitution. <laughs> it's not a right. Think of it this way. God can read your mind. And what does he tell you to do with your needs? Ask for them. Well, if God in his omniscience is saying, you know, I can read your mind, but I want you to ask. Is, is, is it perhaps possible that one of the reasons, but one, the main reason is because that's the, the nature of your relationship. You are a creature. He is a creator. You are a child. He is the father. The nature of your relationship involves asking, asking and believing, right? But if he's asking you to do that, he's commanding you rather to do that, with him who knows your mind, how much more so is it obvious on the face of it that you are not entitled to be resentful over others who are not anticipating your needs. Now, it's wonderful when people do that for us. and I, I, I don't, I'm not taking responsibility off of anyone to try to do that. It's just that your results will vary, of course. So how does this all go wrong? How does a relationship that starts with seeing God give his most costly and undeserved gift. How does, how does a relationship that starts there that pivots into, let's be generous with each other. Obviously, we've just seen the generosity of God. That's what we should do. Let's be generous with each other. How, does, how do we start there and end up in James 4 where fights and quarrels, either hot fights and quarrels or cold fights and quarrels take place? How do we get there? Honestly, so, so what I'm asking is, you know, where does it all go wrong? Honestly, <laughs> we stop being like little children. In Matthew 18, 1 through 3, Jesus says that if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must become like little children. Let me give you an example of a little children moment in an adult person's prayer. Look at Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Read that again. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Note, he was justified. He was asking in the only kind of way that leads to salvation. Broken, humble, bold asking. And note where he went with his asking. Where he went with his justification. Where he went with this renewed relationship, this new relationship with God. Where did he go? He went to his house. And he brought that humble, bold way of asking home with him. Unfortunately, over time, <laughs> I'll bet the farm, just because I know how we as Christians work, unfortunately, over time, this tax collector will get off track because the gravitational pull of pride is strong. Do you realize that just about all the New Testament churches and all of the early Christians had to be led through a season where they were tempted to look back over their shoulder at a works-oriented relationship with God 
that bolstered their pride. Do you understand how strong the gravitational pull of transactional religion and transactional relationships is? So that you will, in any human relationship, invariably fall out of the state of grace based on humility and boldness and fall into the state of works based on a transactional relationship. I want what you have. Give me what you have. I'll give you what you want. So on and so forth. So this tax collector, just because he's a Christian, doesn't mean he's out of the woods. He will have to do battle with the incredibly alluring, seductive promise that pride desperately wants to believe that he can deserve anything good. And it'll first start showing up in his prayer life or his non-prayer life or his relationship with God. Eventually, this tax collector's relationship with God, at least in seasons, and really only in seasons, will start to look like the guy who came before him. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I get tithes of all, I give tithes of all I get. This is, this is deserve language. This is transactional language. There's no art of asking here. There's no humble, broken, bold asking here. This is spiritual swap meet. This is I deserve. And he's going to take that home with him too. And when he takes it home with him, all those in his life will begin to experience that same smug resentment, whether it be hostile and outward or quiet and inward. When the tax collector gets off track of seeing the central reality that he is a creature dependent entirely on a creator and a child entirely dependent on a father, when he loses that, he will enter into transactional ways of thinking with both God and man. So, James 4, 1 through 3 becomes a problem, but it's really also a help. The fights and quarrels are diagnostic lights going off on your spiritual dashboard. And they're saying one simple thing. You're not asking right. Either you're not asking or you're not asking right. You're not asking God or you're not asking God right. You're not asking others or you're not asking others right. This light is flashing on, this, on the spiritual dashboard when you see fights and quarrels. And it's saying, asking broken. And I want to be clear because it's so important that some people are just not outward fighters. That they understand that the fights and quarrels sometimes don't come out of the mouth. They just stay in your heart and you just feel these things toward others. That that's just as bad. Might be worse. Because no one knows about it. Maybe not even you. So, here's the problem. Most people don't know what they want. And that makes it really hard to have relationships. And it makes it really hard to understand, like, 
what things are, what's, what are going on. But do you understand that you can use James 4, 1 through 3 as a diagnostic to tell you what you want? Do you understand that? All you have to do is ask this question. What are the commonalities between my fights and quarrels, either outwardly or inwardly? And what am I trying to get? What is threatened? What am I afraid of losing? What am I trying to gain? And if you look across the commonalities of all your fights and quarrels, whether inward or outward, and you ask, like, what am I trying to get? What am I afraid of losing? What am I trying to gain? You're going to see what you want. You're going to see what's important to you. And a lot of times, just so we're clear, it's, it's you want to be worshipped. That's what you want. And that's why someone's disrespect at work can ring in your heart for three days, but their use of the Lord's name in vain does not. Because they have used your name in vain and you want to be Lord. So often, the view we get from asking the question this way, what stirs me up? What am I willing to fight over? What am I willing to resent over? The answers to those questions are sometimes really depressing. Like, what is the person who yells at other drivers looking for? What is the person who seethes at a boss's disrespect looking for? Self-righteousness, right? Worship. I want, I want things on my terms. But sometimes, this is the best I can do for you, sometimes the answer to those questions is only slightly depressing instead of totally depressing. So, for instance, what is a spouse frustrated over his or her spouse's spending habits looking for? Well, I mean, one of the things they're looking for is financial security. What is a husband frustrated over his wife's sexual disinterest looking for? Among other things, more physical intimacy. What is a single person who is frustrated with their singleness looking for? Oh, companionship, physical intimacy, children. And these things, these desires are not bad. But have they become idols? Do they need to be, do these desires need to be detoxed from the poisons of pride and idolatry? Do they need to be healed and clean like a leper that Jesus encounters in the Gospels? Well, ask God. Bring them to God and he will send them through the crucible of prayer. He will send them through the crucible of patience. He will send them through the crucible of suffering. He will separate what is worthwhile from what is worthless. All of our desires need to be cleaned by the blood of Jesus. None of them are pure. None of them are sacrosanct. And all of them are in danger of becoming idols. So how do we restore fellowship? How do we restore fellowship with God? How do we restore fellowship with man? Well, let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your labor, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate those who are evil. You've tested and exposed as liars those who falsely claim to be apostles. Without growing weary, you have preserved and endured many things for the sake of my name. But I have this against you. 
you've abandoned your first love. Therefore, keep in mind how far you've fallen. Repent and perform the deeds you did at first. But if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So what are the deeds we did at first? We asked. We asked God. That's, that's the first deed. That's really kind of the first year of our Christian life. Was just asking a billion questions. And we're also, by the way, asking other Christians a billion questions. And we're also asking non-Christians questions like, do you want to go to hell? The first deeds of this creature, creator, child, father relationship are the pure deeds of asking God for massively big and undeserved things with a spirit of humility and patience. Is, is, the, is the light, and it, Jesus refers to removing the lampstand, is the light of your relationship with God kind of growing dim? Maybe it's like really dim. Well, you can renew that light by going back and asking God like you used to. With humility and boldness. And you can return to the basic rhythm of your relationship with God. And that's what personal revival is. It's really just about a renewed asking centered relationship with God. God, what does your word say? God, what do you want from me? God, God, would you meet these needs? Would you meet that need? God, let me bring my anxieties to you. On Sunday mornings before I get out of bed, I always pray a, I think it's a 10 word, it's a 7 word prayer. And it is full pews, full hearts, full offering plates. Now, every one of those requests represent sources of real anxiety for me. These are, these are real concerns for me. I think, of, I think about these things all the time. They, they matter. As, as a pastor, these things are a really big deal to me. Full pews, full hearts, full plates. All of those things are a way of me bringing anxieties to the Lord of me telling him what I'm afraid of losing or not having, of me telling him, like, these are things that are really weighing on me, but none of them are pure. I'm, there are plenty of times when I want full pews just because it's more fun. And there are even times when I want full hearts because it would make me feel good about what I'm doing. And it would, there are plenty of times when I want full plates just so I can rest from this ongoing existential question of whether we'll pay our bills and so on and so forth. In other words, so I don't have to depend on God. Even those three things, which most people would say are pure, are not pure. Because the prayer of those things is not pure. But what happens as I repeatedly bring that prayer to God, Sunday morning after Sunday morning, before I've gotten out of bed, is that I'm in relationship with the one who matters more than those things. 
and we're talking about those things, dealing with those things, so on and so forth. And so the light of your relationship has grown dim. Your light of your relationship with God's grown dim. Well, the way to fuel that is to enter into that all-important asking relationship. And remember what Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Has the light gone out in your relationship with a person? There's an asking problem. You've got to fix it by asking God first. But not only. You've also got to go to the person whom you're resenting or tempted to resent and ask in the same way you did God. Humbly, boldly, specifically, and entirely dependent on a miracle to take place in that conversation where so much could go wrong. Lord God, we praise praise.